Welcome to the podcast of MotorWeek, television's original automotive magazine. MotorWeek is made possible by Lucas Oil and TireRack.com. Here's your MotorWeek podcast host, John Davis. Thank you, Alec Webb, and welcome everyone to MotorWeek podcast number 267. I indeed am John Davis, and with me today are Kyle Scanlon and Jessica Ray from our staff. And we're going to jump right into things. The 2022 Hyundai Elantra N. Kyle, you've had a chance to drive it. Tell us all about it. So, yeah, just uh, the other week, I was invited out to Sonoma, California, where we're at the infamous Sonoma Raceway and got to test both the Elantra N and the Kona N, both of which have a uh, four-cylinder turbocharged power power force, powertrain, um, and... 276 horsepower, and I got to say, both of these cars were absolutely amazing to drive. Uh, the Elantra, I was lucky enough to drive on the actual raceway, and my favorite thing in the world is obviously having a third pedal, and uh, you know, for being a younger person on the staff, I love manual transmissions, and I wish every car had them. Good for you. Good for you. <laughs> but unfortunately, that's not the case, both of which the Kona and the Elantra are available with a wet dual-clutch dual transmission for those that don't want a third pedal. But I have to say, I was absolutely blown away by both vehicles. Uh, one of my favorite aspects of them is has to be how they tune the exhaust system. The cracks and the pops that come from that car, yeah. it, it almost doesn't make sense <laughs> because you don't expect those noises to come from an Elantra, especially a Kona. And the looks I got on the road while I was passing some people and downshifting and making a whole lot of noise yeah was a blast i gotta very, say very very european um the uh, the two liter turbo four that's the one that they've already been using in the veloster and it doesn't have a boost function it does have a boost function they have uh the there's an end button that you can hit on the steering wheel that pushes the car to its maximum so you get about i think they said 40 seconds that you get this complete boost with everything the car has to offer but then mm -hmm. after it's done you're not allowed to hit the button again for a minute or two i can't remember the exact details but the it car does. has to cool down in between your, your it takes boost. the uh horsepower up to what 286 yeah it goes from 276 to 286 and uh it was it was really fun to hit that button on the uh on the straight line coming around the course because it, the first couple laps i noticed that the car in front of me kept pulling away and you know i was foot to the floor uh you know going all the way to the rev limiter and i couldn't catch this guy for some reason and then the next lap i realized i didn't hit the button and when uh, i hit the button, I was right with him <laughs> the the um kona it's it's kind of unusual i mean everybody and their brother's got a performance uh, suv but we haven't really seen uh, that much of the performance, real performance SUVs coming from Asian manufacturers. So the Kona N really stands out. And it's, 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 not, it's a small vehicle, but it's not super duper small and it's extremely usable. So what did you think about that combination of this really practical and affordable SUV getting this kind of treatment? It's a little unusual. It's definitely unusual, but uh, they made it work. <laughs> I, I have to say, you know, the, the Kona is, is extremely reliable. It's extremely comfortable. It's a great, you know, small family hauler or, you know, for someone that just needs a little extra space in the vehicle. But adding that performance factor to it, I, I think it's really going to open it up 
to like a, a new market, if you will. It'll, it'll get people to start looking at that car that had probably never really looked at it before and thought that it would be something that they would want because it was just, you know, practical, affordable, and not nearly as performance driven. It's almost like, uh, you know, the hot hatchback revisited from the 80s, but in a totally different direction. Yeah. Speaking, speaking of SUVs, let's go from the small to the fairly large. Jessica, Jeep Grand Cherokee. First, we had the Cherokee L. Now we've got the, the mainstay Cherokee. Why do you think Jeep did the three row first and the two row second? I think they really wanted to emphasize this new three row because chats with a lot of the PR folks at Jeep, they almost see, they, they think that, that um, they're going to sort of sell half and half, like half are going to be three row, half are going to be two row. Um, and I'm assuming they also hope that'll just boost sales overall, um, probably more than the, the volume that they already produce, which, I mean, the Grand Cherokee is already one of their best sellers. It, it sort of battles with the, with the Wrangler every year. Um, but I think it really got um, a lot of good press. I, th I think do, doing, doing this, doing it this way, putting the three row out there first and people are on the road and they're looking at this new car and they're like, what is that? And then you see, that's, oh wait, that's that, a, that is very true. First time I saw it on the road, it's like, wait, wait a minute. I didn't even know that was in the dealership yet. Exactly. And I've, I, it's so funny because I was for Thanksgiving, I, I drove up to New York to go visit family and um, I stopped to get gas. I was driving a Prius, by the way. <laughs> um, I stopped to get gas. Good, good for you. Smart, <laughs> smart, you know, smart on the pocketbook. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm much better than my, my Jeep on gas. But anyway, yeah. so I stopped to get gas and in front of me, filling up in front of me was a guy in a Grand Cherokee L. And that uh, somebody else parked going inside also had a Grand Cherokee L and they both started talking and they were complimenting each other's Grand Cherokee L. But then also it was just like, it really, that new design language, the, the, the Grand Cherokee L really launched that because we see that in the, uh, in the Grand Cherokee, we see it in the Wagoneer. We're going to uh, see some more of it with the new Compass. Um, we're likely going to see it when uh, the, the Cherokee gets a redesign. So it's really launching this whole new generation of, of Jeep, really, because you know, now that Stellantis is in, they've, they've really been trying to focus on building back the brand, making people believe that, or, or trying to um, get in better graces with a lot of customers. With, oh. I think I think the Cherokee cost them a lot of followers. You know, yeah. it, it was such a departure. Yeah, and so, um, so the back to the the two row the two row model. Um, if you take a look at it on the outs exterior wise, it's a shorter wheelbase version of the Grand Cherokee L. The proportions are really really nice, um, and I I mean when I saw the Grand Cherokee L, it felt felt big it looked yeah. big this definitely will bring you back and like oh yes this is this is the grand cherokee that i know this is the sizes these are the proportions this is the heart of the mid-sized market mm -hmm. and, yeah. and when i saw it i agreed with you i think that the proportions actually are just about perfect and it you know they took a, a real chance of taking that icon and and destroying it by uh, you know but they they haven't 
they've kept it safe too. I think the design language is very safe. It, you know, if you see it on the road, you're going to know it's a Grand Cherokee because it's very reminiscent of before, uh, of the last generation, but just sort of smoothed out and, and more modern. Um, so exterior wise, I think it looks fantastic. You also have now the option um, of the, I think it's the two upper trim levels. They have the, you can get the black uh, uh, gloss roof, which looks very, very nice. I had a very interesting spec when I drove it. I had an all white version, like the roof was white. Um, I think I had, an, um, yeah, I had an all white version and it, if you took a look at it, it looked very much like the previous generation um, I, in a good way that you're like, oh yeah, this is a Grand Cherokee. And I actually had all the press photos have the, the black roof on, on um, you know, a lot of the models. Um, so it was really interesting to see. But Let uh, me ask you about the interior. I mean, they've stuck mm -hmm. with the, the, the traditional looking grill, uh, the, the theme of, of the grill for the Jeep and all that. So outside, I think it's unmistakable, a Jeep, but what they, <clears throat> the interior, I assume is a direct copy over from the L, but now that you've seen the Grand Wagoneer with all of its screens and the Wagoneer with a few fuel less and, the, and then the L, do you think they've been able to go digital inside the, these larger Jeep products and keep that Jeep flavor yes i think so i mean it's very clear that the design language is going to be throughout the entire lineup and this is where they want to move and they want to compete not just where the grand cherokee was before but they want to compete now with the higher end luxury suvs um, in which if you sit in a summit reserve that costs like sixty six thousand dollars you're going to feel like that the quality of materials is better. The technology is better. Um, specific now, there's a couple differences with the the 2021 2021 Grand Cherokee L, and this is now the 2022 Grand Cherokee. They have not announced pricing yet for the 2022 Grand Cherokee L. So this is only right now factual for the two row Grand Cherokee. But now you have the option for the um, the passenger screen in the front. So you can mm -hmm. also get that. There um, is the rear seat entertainment. I, from what it seems like too, pricing is going to go up on the Grand Cherokee L for 2022 um, yeah. because the pricing that was announced for the two row um, was was definitely um, very at the same level as the Grand Cherokee L. So I want to warn people of that. You, but moving, you find a 21 buy it. So. Right. Yeah. But, but yeah, no, moving back to the interior, um, it, it's one of my favorite interiors because it is such an improvement over the previous generation. It uses a lot of fantastic technology on the inside, but still there's a lot of buttons. There's still plenty of buttons, um, like climate control, you know, who, everyone hates that they, you know, the, the models in which they put the climate control in the touchscreen, you have buttons for that. Um, just very well thought out because they know exactly who they're going to sell these to. They know they're, and they really were focusing on people who use these models to drive all the time. They're, they're carrying their children around. They're going on long road trips. Um, and they, you know, um, managed to eke out as much space inside as they possibly can. 
whether that's comfort for passengers, which is obviously key when it comes to a Grand Cherokee, but also plenty of room in the rear for all of your luggage and, and things you need for storage. Um, and of course, it is absurdly capable. If you buy a Summit Reserve, you're going to get the top of the line uh, four by four package, essentially. And um, you're going to have a Jeep that is so much more capable than anything you will ever put it through. Um, but yeah. Great report, both of you. Um, we're going to move on now to um, something I have a chance to recently drive. And in a way, I'm going to, we're going to, it was actually one of the, the stars of the uh, LA Auto Show, but stay tuned, everybody. We're going to recap the LA Auto Show in uh, just a few minutes down the line. But I had a chance to spend about an hour in the um, Lucid Air. Now, if you up on electric vehicles at all, you know that Lucid is a startup company. The Air is their first offering. It's a very luxurious, large uh, EV sedan. It's already won Motor Trends Car of the Year, and it's very controversial because at the moment, the only model that is out is the Air Dream Edition, and it's $169,000. But it is a competitor for all of the awards this year, including uh, the North American Car of the Year. And that's how I got to drive it. And we've had a couple of comments, according to Jessica online, from my first drive, because I, I'm in a car doing my comments, but I'm not driving. And it's pretty clear that it's not the Lucid Air. And it's totally my fault. I had a camera malfunction, and so we did the best we could. So forgive us for that, but we do make mistakes, and we only had a very brief time with the car. Having said that, here is this $169,000 automobile, the first one to break the EPA 500-mile range barrier. Yes, folks, somebody did it, and it wasn't a Tesla. Uh, they have a 118-kilowatt-hour battery pack, and in the range tuning, there's two tunings, there's range and performance. In the range tuning, it has a maximum distance of 520 miles. Now in the performance edition, that range drops to 471 miles, but it breaks the 1000 horsepower barrier, 1,111 horsepower. Mind you, you still get 970 uh, 933 horsepower with the range version, but they've done, you know, an excellent job of packaging a big battery and an extremely good looking automobile and, you know, topping Tesla in uh, a couple of ways. They will have a lower range single motor. Uh, the launch edition is dual motor, uh, all wheel drive. They'll have a longer, uh, a, a single motor version at more competitive to uh, Tesla at about $77,000 more competitive to the uh, S uh, out in January. But it is this full on highly luxurious model that uh, I had a chance to drive. And I have to say, I was very impressed. And that's with a couple of caveats. There have been some comments from folks that saw their exhibit at the LA Auto Show that they didn't think the quality looked like it was all there, uh, particularly the exterior quality. The particular model I drove, which obviously was a prototype, uh, I saw no obvious shortfalls on quality, either exterior or interior. And it is the interior of this car. 
that just leaps out at you and says, you are driving a very, very premium vehicle. Uh, think Scandinavian more than say German, lighter tones in this particular model I drove. Yes, plenty of touchscreens, but plenty of redundant manual controls as well. Something uh, you were just talking about uh, on the uh, Jeeps. And that's what I'm looking for rather than just a big blank screen. Is it fast? Yes, 2.4 seconds, zero to 60, you expect it to be fast. What impressed me though, was that the throttle was not temperamental. It was not touchy. You could drive this vehicle in heavy traffic, and we did mostly around um, Northern Virginia, and you, anybody who lives there knows what the traffic's like, and it was very docile. Did it handle well? Yes, it did. All that weight, lower center of gravity, you know, there's, I'm not sure we've driven an EV yet that doesn't handle well because of the uh, lower center of gravity. But I was impressed that the car had real feedback to the steering wheel. I felt like I was, by, I was driving a, a something basically close to an S-Class or an Audi A8 as far as feel uh, through the feedback. Uh, and um, it's a very interesting car. It's going to be very interesting to see if they will be able to get this same kind of combination of range, quality, and feel in their upcoming SUV. But we've had a chance to drive the Lucid Air. I think right now it deserves a lot of praise. I'm not really sure that it deserves all of the accolades it's probably going to get because it is extremely expensive. But just like Tesla did some benchmarking and breakthroughs, when they came out with the original S, I think Lucid has done that uh, with the air and uh, their first impressions are very, very strong. Either of you have any questions about it? I do, I have a question. Yeah. What was, uh, what was like the, did it, were there a couple drive modes you had? Like what was the regen braking and how did that feel? The regen braking was uh, you were able to basically do one uh, on or off. It had some normal regen braking, but under normal drive mode, it was extremely mild. Uh, only when you uh, basically went after, and I've forgotten exactly what they called it, uh, the, uh, the more regen drive mode did you feel it kick in and, and really kind of bring you down. Could you do one pedal driving? Yes, you could do one pedal driving. Although that, that was not a feature that they were uh, highlighting uh, on the car. And I'm not a real big fan of, of one pedal driving anyway, but I found that when we were on some of the back roads, uh, anticipating where the stop signs were, you could pretty much get it down to, to zero without tapping the brakes. That doesn't uh, surprise me. It, it was uh, the under normal conditions, I didn't, I left it in there with the normal drive mode and I thought the regen braking was pretty mild. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't surprise me because um, I think the, the people that they wanna sell to probably don't care so much about, um, right. Care, they care more about the overall driving experience. The, Which was the, luxurious. Right. The only thing that you lose when you don't, when you sort of are a little bit light when it comes to the regen braking is just the saving of energy when you're driving. Yeah, but you know what? I have to say that having now been in, in so many of the electric vehicles, I'm just not impressed with how much on these high mileage, high range vehicles, I'm not impressed with how much regen braking is actually helping you. 
Now, mind you, if you're down to your last few miles and you're trying to make it home, yeah, I'm sure it pays off. But otherwise, it seems to be, if you've got it up to the max setting in whatever you're in, a very uncomfortable um, distraction. If the whole idea of these electric vehicles is to get you in them and make you feel like you're uh, not making a lot of compromises versus a, an internal combustion engine, yet you know doing something that's better for the planet, regen braking sort of takes away from that. It sort of reminds you that maybe this is not a perfect technology yet. So um, I know that, that when I get into an EV with my spouse, Cheryl, and I've got the regen up, or when she has a chance to, to sample it, because I'm always after her opinion, she finds the regen braking annoying and obtrusive and just not the kind of driving experience that she would opt for in, uh, on an all out situation. So I can maybe. see, uh, yeah, no, I absolutely get that, especially as a passenger. And I, I would yeah, say that's, that that's as, another a, point. as a passenger who um, like uh, occasionally, like I get motion sickness. And um, so I can see how regen could be attributed um, to a more uncomfortable experience, but certainly when I'm alone, actually, um, when I drove the, the C40 recharge, that was strictly really one pedal drive. And I was almost surprised about how much I, I really liked how hard the, the regen braking was. But like I said, it doesn't surprise me that, that Lucid is a little um, lighter on that just because um, uh, other time spent in say like the Taycan, I felt right. the Taycan was also very much like that. Um, yes. But that's just, I think, the nature of, of the, those are also two very, very large vehicles, large, luxurious uh, vehicles. And, but a, and we'll a lot of weight. So when you get that jerk from regen braking, mm -hmm. you're getting a lot of physics in there. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, re, it tosses you around. Kyle, I'm curious, since you're, in, you know, as it, being in charge of road testing, you drive everything we get in, including all of the electrics, actually more than most of us do. When you're basically driving those vehicles on your own, do you keep the regen at a lower level or do you crank it up? Um, you know, I kind of play around with it for the most part. So the most you know, recent one we had, we had the new ID4, the Volkswagen in. And um, I was really trying to figure out how much the regen braking helped. And uh, driving back and forth from the track, which, you know, is pretty far away from our office and a lot of that, you know, on Route 70 and whatnot, a lot of hills up and down. And I would, uh, I, you know, I'd try to test it out where a lot of the downhill slopes, I would put the regen braking on maximum and just, you know, barely have my foot on the gas pedal going down. And there were times during, you know, a few miles uh, you know, of going downhill and coasting and having the regen on, I could gain five or seven miles back on really? the charge. Right. Yeah, it was, doing, it was doing pretty well. I actually had to make a game time decision because I planned on bringing the ID4 home after our track testing. And at that point where I decide whether I go back to the office or go home, I had 44 miles until I got back to my house and I had 46 miles left on the charge. So at that moment, I was kind of like, well, the office is only 20 miles away. <laughs> so I'm going to go back to the office and plug it in, you know, a little bit of range, range anxiety there. But um, 
I do agree that, you know, I've never been in an EV actually when someone has the regen on maximum, but it, as a driver, sometimes it can be somewhat jolting and severe when you let off the gas and all of a sudden you're, you're leaning forward and you don't really expect to. And, um, but you just made, you just made the point that, that when you get to the point where you're a little bit nervous about, uh, range and there's no fast charger around uh, mm -hmm. and you were up and people, most folks don't realize our test track we use now in Boonesboro is up in the foothills of Maryland. Yeah. Uh, you've got some pretty uh, severe inclines there and you took advantage of it. And that's, yeah. a, that's a, that's a positive thing. So yeah, it got you home. It, it did. It got me back to the office. It didn't get me home. Oh, I thought, I thought you were going to go, go for it at that point. No, no, I, I, didn't, I didn't go for it at that time. I, I didn't want to get stuck on the side of the highway. Uh, no, uh, please. Come please. on, Kyle. We got you, that. The ID4 has uh, three years of free Electrify America charging. You could have stopped anywhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You could have stopped at a Walmart. Come on. I, I will confess that I did the same thing, although the land was much flatter. Um, the, the, the longest trip I took in the uh, Ford Mustang Mach-E, I, I basically got home with, I, well, it was no longer registering any uh, charge at all. And I was using the, uh, the, but I just think when you folks if paying six figures for uh, something like a Lucid Air a launch edition or that's not going to impress them, I don't think. But Well, you know, it's interesting you, know. you say that, John, because um, I, I'm not really talking about it in this podcast. Um, probably we'll talk about it in the next one. But I recently drove um, the, the new Porsche Taycan GTS sedan and um, the, the folks at Porsche were like, we want people to do that. We want people to test its limits, go to empty because you can, you know, a lot of the, the um, uh, sort of information that comes out about EVs about charging wise will be, oh, you can get a 10% to 80% charge in such and such amount of minutes. Um, but there, you know, the people at Porsche were like, take it down to, you know, you have two Zero. miles, two yeah. miles left and you know, because the, the car <laughs> can go. You know, I'm, I'm sure that the automakers are dialing in a fudge factor. They've always done that with gasoline and diesel powered vehicles. You read empty and you've got a gallon or two gallons left. You just don't really know how much. And it's probably the same with these batteries. There's, there's a little bit of, of fudge factor in there. You know, maybe it's five miles, maybe it's 10, who knows? I've never heard anybody speak to it. But um, it changes too. I, I think there is kind of a challenge to see how much you can get out of one of these. Oh, yeah, yeah definitely. I'll drive the next one down to zero, see what happens. <laughs> I'll just have, I'll have a support vehicle behind me yep. just in case. Well, they better have some way to charge you up or, <laughs> or they'll just, please don't leave it by the side of the road. Oh. <laughs> All right, let's move on. That, that was a great discussion, everybody. We do have a YouTube question uh, from... Uh, wildlife pepper. Prepper. prepper. Wildlife prepper. Okay. This is a good one. Why do cars always have to get bigger? The new Civic is bigger than, than Accords of the past. Bigger isn't always better. I would like to see a car shrink a bit for once. Well, I got my own uh, impression of why it's going on, but I'll, I'll save that for the end. Who wants to start? It's all about safety. Cars are safer than they have ever been. 
Um, I mean, just think about like cars have to be even thicker and wider because uh, I want to say it was 2003 or 2002 was when they introduced side impact airbags. You know, mm-hmm. they didn't, I don't, you know, I don't actually think my Jeep has side impact airbags, but I could be wrong. Um, but, but they've been around for almost 20 years. Yeah, they've been around for 20 years. So just the nature of new technology um, has, and, and more safety has made cars bigger. And it's funny that, that they mentioned, you know, we wish cars would get smaller um, because the, the new Jeep Grand Cherokee, the two row model is actually 250 pounds lighter than the previous generation. Um, part of that, that has nothing to do, you know, it's not like it's less safe, um, but it, they just utilized lighter metals to create the vehicle. Um, but yeah, no, big- Lighter actually means smaller in that respect? In, I mean, if you want to say it's smaller weight-wise, but it's not, it's not smaller length-wise. They just like, use more high-strength steel and some aluminum and magnesium. Yeah. Like that because weight's a big issue in fuel economy. So yeah. they want to get that as they want, you know, they want, if they're going to go up in size, that's great, but they don't want to lose fuel economy and weight's the way to get that out or one yes. of the ways. Yeah. Um, but uh, one of the big things too is that the average size of, a vehicle as, and this has to do with the fact that we love trucks and we love SUVs here in America, the average size of a vehicle has increased over the last few decades. Boy, um, so, so much so that the um, IIHS has actually very recently increased the, the size and weight of their side impact barrier, which they use in testing. Um, and they retested a bunch of um, crossovers, uh, specifically, I guess, com- compact crossovers. I would think so, yeah. Um, that, that is the class. And the only compact crossover t- that they retested to receive a good score on that test was the Mazda CX-5. Wow. So, the, uh, the, well, it could be, I guess, yeah, the, the, the thing that struck me about this question is if you go back long before either one of you two were born to the Detroit mantra of the 1950s and 60s, it was longer, lower, wider. And they were answering the call from Americans for more room inside. It really didn't have much to do with safety. And I noticed this sort of kickoff in the last, really accelerating the last um, two product cycles, the last 15 years, by everybody seeking a little bit more room here, a little bit more room. And then here comes Volkswagen with its Jetta and Passat, and they made their those vehicles longer and wider to get more rear seat room and be able to claim at the time that they had the most in their segments. And once somebody does that, then everybody else has got to do that to remain competitive. So there is besides safety, and I think the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety has had a big factor in this, but I think there's also been a marketing factor that when one of your competitors makes their vehicle to get an edge uh, somewhere in the cabin, particularly in the back seat, you've got to pretty much do it too. Uh, So we're in a cycle. um, And it's also one of the reasons that we're seeing compact sedans uh, continue to sell reasonably well, like the Civic, 
but the midsize sedans uh, wane because now the compacts are almost as big as what we used to think about midsize, or actually it is in some cases. So um, I'm not sure, um, wildlife prepper, uh, you're going to get your wish anytime soon because it's pretty clear that bigger vehicles are selling well in this country unless we uh, continue to see gas uh, get a lot more expensive than even it is today. And that's possible. Last time that happened, every, nobody could buy small vehicles fast enough. <laughs> so here we go. Okay, let's... Um, we were teasing a little bit before talking about the LA Auto Show and the uh, Lucid Air making a, a big public uh, debut there. But there were some other things that a lot of people didn't even think the LA Auto Show for 2021 was going to happen. A lot of brands did not partake in the LA Auto Show, but those that did got a lot of publicity. So let's go around, you two, and make Kyle, let's start with you. Uh, looking at what was new at the LA Auto Show, um, did you have a favorite? Uh, I mean, the one that really caught my eye was the Tycon GTS Sport Turismo. I wonder why. Because, uh, I mean, it, <laughs> it looks great. <laughs> it does, you know, um, with, with, you know, 590 horsepower coming out of it with launch control, a 3.5 second zero to 60, a sub 12 second quarter mile with a top speed of 155 miles an hour. It, you know, it, it's definitely going to outperform, I feel like, what it looks like. It, 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 you know, it's a little bit clunkier, obviously a little bit bigger, but uh, it just, uh, you know, going through all the vehicles that were released, that was just the one every time I was scrolling through all the pictures between the Porsche Cayman that came out and the other Tycon, uh, what was the name of that one, Jess? Uh, the, are you talking about the Cross Turismo? Or yeah, the Cross just... Turismo, the one that, that's the more off-road off-road so mm -hmm. they will see how many people use it that way um but you know I, I, it was something about the the gts sport that just caught my eye i love the styling of it it's got a you know big long front end the sloping rear on it um i'm excited to see what the uh the rear seat space is like how comfortable is to sit in the back of that because it I'm guessing that's one of the reasons that they went in the direction they did was a to have more cargo room and b to have a more you know comfortable luxurious rear seat section for passengers. Um, but you know with a price tag over one hundred thirty thousand dollars, you know it's it's a pretty steep price tag. So we'll see how many they sell, but it's definitely the one that caught my eye more than anything else. And it looks a lot about what Porsche is doing. They're not leaving any niche unattended. Go yep. ahead. Go ahead, say, it looks great in that carmine red. That yeah. red is hot. That is a yeah. great color. Um, the green is great too. The green is very cool. The green is cool. They, I think that's sort of the staple color for the cross Turismo. Okay. Mm -hmm. Anybody that doesn't know what we're talking about as far as visually, uh, go and do your Google for the 2021 LA Auto Show. Uh, best of show. I think it probably is is considered one of the Porsche really took advantage of the fact that not a lot of manufacturers were, were showing new stuff there. Can we call it a wagon? I was kind of wondering. <laughs> I called the wagon, but I didn't quite want to call it a wagon. Well, it's, 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 we have called those body that body shape that before. I mean, that's they will never do that, but we have. So. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of a wagon. It's a Tycon wagon. Tycon yeah. Wagon. So what did you, uh, Jessica, what did you uh, see that uh, interest you beside that? Of course, big, big news being um, Toyota and uh, Subaru's EV news. We got the BZ4X on the Toyota side. 
and the Solterra on the Subaru side. Um, very much looking like a RAV4. That's just very yeah. smooth. Very smooth, that RAV4. Um, so these... Uh, not surprising. Nothing about this was surprising, but this is a big deal because this is finally, you know, the to Toyota sells how many RAV4s every year? A million of them. Um, yeah. So this is a very big deal of getting um, hopefully a relatively affordable um, compact crossover EV out um, or another one into the segment. Toyota obviously being such a leader in that segment uh, here in the U.S., so it was sort of a matter of time, and I know almost Toyota does it begrudgingly <laughs> a little bit. Oh yeah, they've actually gotten a lot of criticism because they've not been more forthright or I should say aggressive in pure EVs, but this is a company that basically made practical the hybrid, and you've already got the RAV4 uh, Prime plug-in, which is a superior vehicle. Uh, it is a rather them. natural evolution that they would they would go after that market. Yeah, I mean, we're looking at under 250 mile range, um, but uh, the interior looks really nice. I mean, very much, uh, very simple, but still a lot of uh, good touch controls to it. Um, obviously we didn't really get to see too, too much of it. Uh, and we will eventually, probably hopefully early in the, in the new year, um, but the, the Solterra also looks very similar. Uh, John and I were talking about this. It, the right. relationship is very similar to that of the, the BRC and the, uh, the GR86, um, which of course I think is a good thing. You know, the, specifically when we talk about a, the biggest, a big difference being on the Subaru side, it will have uh, standard all wheel drive. Of course, right. the Subaru is going to have that um, and likely just be a little, feel a bit more rugged and, and durable than, than the Toyota. The, uh, the other two, um, and they were concepts that struck me, um, the Hyundai 7 concept and Kia EV9, both three row crossover uh, EVs, they're, they're really going to have to to notch, I thought they were both kind of interesting. They're both very blocky, and mm -hmm. you could say they take some styling uh, cues from the Hummer. I don't know. I'm not going to go quite that far. But sort of. while we look at things like the RAV4 and most of the other EVs that are out now that are reasonably affordable, you could use them as a second vehicle. They've got 250 to 300 mile range. You're not likely to take it on a, a long interstate trip. When you start looking at your larger three row SUVs, which these two concepts do, I almost wonder if they're not gonna have to pull a rabbit out of the hat as far as range uh, and affordability combined when those finally make it out. But what did you two think of those two big uh, vehicles? I really, I love the EV9. Um, I hate to say that it kind of looks like a giant Kia Soul, but it kind of does. And I kind of really like it. Like <laughs> I didn't think I would, but I actually kind of really liked it. It's very angular. Um, and maybe it was the color that they use because they use this very gorgeous, like blue turquoise color. Yeah, the metallic the blue. Yeah, it was gorgeous. And um Obviously, it's a concept, but they do say that it's it's going to be very influential in sort of the the EVs that we see from them. 
And the fact that they can't, they can't even make enough uh, three-row SUVs as it is, both Hyundai and Kia, because right. the, the Palisade and the Telluride right now are some of the hottest on the market. You see um, them everywhere. You see them everywhere. You see them everywhere, but you can't buy one because right. everybody else is buying one. Um, and you certainly can't buy one for MSRP. <laughs> yeah, no way. Um, but so I think I personally would love to see more fuel efficient three row SUVs before I see an all electric, all electric ones. Um, I was having a conversation very similar to this kind of recently because uh, someone uh, on Twitter spotted a, uh, a Tahoe hybrid. And I was thinking in my mind, we're going to see a Tahoe EV before we see another Tahoe hybrid. Yeah. And um, so, I mean, obviously I think it's a, a good thing moving toward the EV, but kind of be nice if, if they were maybe a plug-in plug hybrid, plug a plug-in hybrid with, but, but not, and not just a plug-in hybrid, but one that uses like the powertrain is just more well thought out so that when you are not using the EV side of the plug-in hybrid, you still get, you, you are still being fuel efficient. That is my biggest right. issue. And maybe that turns into the rant of the day, but my biggest thing with, with plug-in hybrids is when you're not using the electric range, you're sometimes getting the same or worse. But anyway. So that I, well, I, I, I think it's that. reasonable. I think if you look at the way that the Europeans are approaching it, uh, they're getting rid of V8s, they're largely getting rid of V6s, they're going to large four cylinders, mm -hmm. and then they're putting a 48 volt electrical system on. So they've got yep. EV boost uh, available at, at almost all times. And they're, I think that's what they're after because they're recognizing that most of the vehicles in Europe are driven short, relatively short distances where fuel economy, if you leave it without doing anything is the worst. Right. And they're trying to do that. And uh, if you look at something in this country and I don't get me wrong, I like V8s and V6s, but if you look at something that's got a three liter V6 in it, you're really not losing that much to go to a two and a half liter four cylinder, but give it some kind of electrical boost, but you are making, you can make a significant like 20% improvement in fuel economy. So it's true. Yeah. I, I want to see like you, I, I do not want to see, I do not think it's wise to be putting all of your eggs into the EV basket. Cause I don't personally think Americans are ready for it, except maybe as a second or third vehicle. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot of money to pay for a second or third vehicle. So I think they've got the brands that are out there looking at internal combustion engines with some kind of electric assist and make it overall a more fuel efficient package. I think they may be the winners, at least for the next 15 years. No, personally. I absolutely yeah. agree. I agree because I think it's hard for some people's brains to wrap their head around it. Um, but if you made every single full-size SUV, five, like you improve the fuel economy by five miles per gallon, that, huge. that's huge. It cuts okay. down on emissions. You know, if, if, if we're talking about sustainability, 
which is what the conversation around EVs should always be about, should be about sustainability, then that should also be in the conversation is, is how gas, how can we make gas engines? Because for many places, say you live up where it's very, very cold. And, right. um, you know, uh, just had some comments about that. Uh, you know, we, we're not looking at, EV, you know, the EVs are great until the temperatures don't get above freezing for two months. So, yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Before we get away from LA and we've been running a little long, I do want to talk about VinFast. Most say is, who's that? VinFast is a new um, Vietnamese automaker. They have come on the U.S. scene or are coming on the U.S. scene very aggressively. They use the LA Auto Show as their coming out party for their two SUVs. They have a compact model, the E35, and a midsize model, the E36. They are going to be, looks like they're going to be beating a lot of the uh, Chinese wannabes into the U.S. market. They're already signing up dealers. They expect sales to begin next year. Um, none of the vehicles look like they break any new ground, but they are talking about some electrified stuff down the line. We here could be what we've been, what I think a lot of automakers have been afraid of for a long time, and that is uh, an upstart Asian automaker coming in with a high quality vehicle at a low price and probably a very generous warranty, although they've not really said very much about any of that. Uh, I don't know what you guys think about VinFast, but I think it's they're kind of exciting. Yeah, no, I mean, I think... Um... I think it is a very exciting uh, new new automaker. They look very conventional. There's there's not a lot. Of, I mean, in fact, if you look at the front ends, they've got that V grill. Almost reminds you of a Nissan. Yeah, I mean, I think they they've probably done a lot of studying about what Americans want to buy and what we're interested in. And certainly, the low price is a big deal because I I think a lot about Hyundai Kia, um, right. in that same vein of being very intelligent about what they sell here at what price. Um, and who would have thought 20 years ago that some of the, some of the product models that, that Hyundai and Kia have, have brought to us and Genesis has evolved from them. So um, I think, I think this is a very interesting um, situation for a new automaker to be in. But um, I'm, I'm really interested to, to see the product in, in reality, to see how it shapes up. You know, they've even said that they, if things go well, they'll start manufacturing vehicles here in 2024. Wow. So they want to they, they be aggressive. Okay. Um, we did sort of have a little bit of a rant and rave. Did anybody else have anything they want to add to that? Uh, I actually don't really have anything except for... Um, Holiday season and parking lots. Mm. Definitely one. People just. I've already just, got a ding in, in, in my. I was going to say, pe people just just be nice. Just be nice in the parking lot. We're, we're all trying to do the same thing. We're going to get our gifts early, get everything done. Stop fighting over parking spots. Stop parking too close or driving aggressively in the parking lot because you see a space that's three spaces closer to the front door of, you know, your marshals <laughs> or wherever you're parking. <laughs> It's just this, this time of year, parking lots just become a fighting pit and it drives me crazy. So just be nice to each other, please. It's the holidays. And also, 
Yeah, go ahead. Say, look around. Don't just use. Don't just look at the screen on your backup camera. No, look yeah. around. Use your head over the shoulder. Left, right. We good? Go. And I thought we didn't know how to turn our heads anymore. <laughs> no, I, I didn't. You know, my my truck's twelve years old at this point. I don't have any of the the nice features in my truck. So I got to go over my shoulder everywhere. <laughs> uh, thank you both. I wrote test producer Kyle Scanlon there giving us his words of uh, good wishes for the holidays. Our digital producer, Jessica Ray. Both, thank you both for joining me today and joining us all for our Motor Week podcast number 267. I want to say thanks to our audio engineer back at MPT, Jim Bigwood, our podcast producer, in this case, Jessica, and our podcast creator, Bob Mixter, who came up with this idea years ago and never, never thought we'd still be doing them, but here we are. <laughs> And to all of you out there, thank you very much for joining us for our Motor Week podcast number 267. And if you're new to the Motor Week family and you'd like to know more about us, just about everything about us is available at our website, motorweek.org, including a station finder so you can watch the show on your local public television station. Just go to the upper corner and pull down uh, the station finder. You can put in your zip code, get time and date. Or you can hop over to our cable partner at MAV TV, and they have us on several times during the week at MAVTV.com for their full listing. You can go to uh, our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash motorweek, and watch just about everything we've done for the past umpteen years, and even stream us for free over at pbs.org slash motorweek. Basically, if you have a screen, you can watch motorweek. Till next time, everyone, I'm John Davis. Thanks for being a part of Motor Week. You've been listening to the podcast of Motor Week, television's original automotive magazine. Motor Week is made possible by Lucas Oil and TireRack.com. For additional information on podcasts, videos, and showtimes, visit our website at MotorWeek.org. And watch Motor Week, television's longest-running automotive magazine series, each week on your local PBS station.